I'm wondering how you, um, what kind of image you hold of God whenever you go to pray or think about God or whatever else you might have. Some people think of sort of the, the old guy with the long beard and the white hair sitting on clouds kind of the thing. Some maybe have this sort of mean Old Testament ready to throw lightning bolts. Some people have Morgan Freeman in a white suit kind of a thing going on. We all have different kinds of images, and I think it's important to kind of sometimes stop and think about how we hold the image of God, because it affects how we approach Him. It affects how we worship. It affects how we pray. I know um, in more recent times, there's been a lot of um, movement in modern churches to really think about God's great love and closeness, and so people begin to think about His close friendship, and like almost everything in society, then they push it to the extreme, to the point that a number of years ago, I saw these t-shirts being sold that said, uh, Jesus is my homeboy, which um, if those of you who don't know the urban slang, which means lifelong close friend kind of a thing. And maybe if you hold it right and view it really in the right way, it's, it's good, but it can really become a problem if we're not careful with it also, right? So what I'd like to do this morning is talk about some of these images that we hold between sort of the two posts on both of the ends. And to kind of cut to the chase where we're going, I'm going to encourage us to hold both things that are really at the far ends of the spectrum as we approach God. The first of which is the one that goes back to this t-shirt, is thinking about God as our friend. And sort of the notion, is that okay? Is that where we are? And you know, the beginning place for that is to really think about, ultimately, God wants more than anything for us to be in relationship with Him. And we know again and again that um, we know how much God loves us and lavishes His love upon us and wants us to be in relationship with Him, that ultimately our own self-worth comes from how much God loves us and where we are enveloped in that love. And, you know, in that part, we think about these words that we heard. We think about Jesus saying, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This idea that we are his friends. And St. Paul in Romans 8, which is like this great, you know, great, great chapter in the Bible, um, he talks about how the Holy Spirit in us allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. Which is kind of like saying the Holy Spirit in you allows you to cry out in a warm way saying, Daddy. It's kind of what it is, and the, that it's sort of crying out that, that kind of closeness. And so we think about all of this part of it, you know, that, that God is imminent. And maybe with the greatest theological doctrine there is in the church, this idea of the incarnation, that God came and is close with us. And whenever we're struggling with anything in life, the suffering we go through, because we all go through it, we think about whatever the Christian answer to suffering is, we begin to think about the incarnation. You know, if you're, if you're really, really down, go watch the Passion of the Christ again. See Jesus get whipped a few times. Or hold on to a crucifix. Or just think about his body being tortured, or the betrayal, or the abandonment, or the psychological torture that he went through as a way of him entering into, fully into our, our suffering. And then you think about how he says on top of that, that I'm with you. I'm going to be, always be with you. Two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am. I'm never going to leave you. We think about all the ways that God draws close to us. You know, we think about um, Scripture and, 
You know, the, if you've ever read the back of the prayer book where we have the catechism, the little outline of faith, I don't know if you've ever noticed that line where it says, why do we call it the word of God? And the prayer book says, because God still speaks. And a lot of how we encounter God is from reading scripture. It will change you. If you've never read it cover to cover, it will change you. Because you'll hear God speak through it. And through prayer. And through the sacraments. And through all these different ways that we encounter God. And we get to know these statements of what he said. That we are his friends. That we are that way. We are close to him that way. And we do experience him as friend. I'm not exactly ready for the homeboy t-shirt, so don't, don't, don't order it for me. Uh, once upon a time, many years ago, I was, I, preached, I was preaching, and I gave some little example like this, and somebody um, sent one to me through Amazon the next week, so don't, please don't, don't send one to me. That was, that was a different deal. I think the harder picture for, this, for us is not to so much think about God as friend. I think we want that. I think that the, uh, to go to the other pole or the other side of it is the harder piece for us. To begin to think that we're friends, but we're not friends of equals, right? We begin to think about God in his majesty. We begin to think about God as the God of the universe. We begin to think about God who created and knows all the trillions of stars everywhere and that's close. We think about all this grandeur and power and all these things about God. That's harder for us, I think, to begin to, to reflect on. I think that's part of what the um, architects in medieval times in building these great cathedrals, you've been to Europe and you walk through those, that's what they were trying to capture, something of this grandeur and greatness. Last week I mentioned how the, uh, the clergy have got this one room where we have all these comic strips that people put up. One of the other ones that I really, really love is, uh, again, it's one of these one-frame comic strips, and it shows the, this medieval architect who's got this picture of this glorious medieval cathedral with flying buttresses and the, you know, the reliefs that have all this stuff on it. And the patrons behind him going, no, no, more of a boom. <laughs> but they're trying to capture that, that grandeur of it, right? And that's, what we're, that's part of what we're looking at. And I wonder why it is we don't talk more about it. I think there are at least a couple reasons. There are probably a lot more. I, I think you know, one of the reasons is because when you really focus in on who God is and his grandeur and his majesty and, his, and this ultimate um, power of who he is, it becomes sort of a, a scary thing, a bit of a fearful thing. I saw once one of the authors I really like, Brennan Manning, he talks about this. He says this, he says, when you think about this, he says, it induces a feeling of terror before the infinite and exposes the sham of our empty religious talk and pointless activity or our idle curiosity and our ludicrous pretensions of importance, our frantic busyness, the awareness that the eternal transcendence of God, of Jesus Christ, is our absolute future, gives us the shakes. And I think there's part of this, you don't hear more people, pastors and priests and people talk about this, because like, who wants to send people out shaking in terror to, to go and yeah, go have a nice week and reflect on your sinfulness before God of this kind who wants everything from you? It's like, okay, well, that doesn't sell very well. So we're a little bit quiet on that. I think the other part about it is we, we don't really like the unknowingness of God. You know, there's lots we do know about God. There's lots we don't know about God, right? The unknowingness of God. We know about God from Scripture. We know about God's love. It's been, you know, Scripture's been called one big love letter. 
We know about God's love and what he's like ultimately from his ultimate revelation in Jesus Christ. But there's a whole lot we don't know. All of that brings us to like the, the lip of the Grand Canyon and we stand looking at the awe of God. And then we get to this place where, I mean, like what pastor wants to stand up or priest wants to stand up and say, yeah, we don't know. I mean, like we know this much. We know what he loves us. We know this and this and this. But there's all this unknowing, all of this mystery. And I will bet there are people in this room that have been hurt by this next move that happens because sometimes people so badly don't want this unknowingness to be out there that they begin to fill in the gaps with their own imagination about how they want God to be. He's the God of judgment or he's the God of guilt or he's the God of whatever. And they begin to fill in all the pieces because, because we love certainty and we fill it in that way. But at the end of the day, God lets us know his presence, but not his essence. At the end of the day, there's no getting around in his greatness that he's full of mystery this way, right? And we know this. We say this every week, these kinds of things. And when we, when we get to the um, Nicene Creed in a minute, we're going to say we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that's seen and unseen, all that unseen is the mystery and the things that we don't know, all these things that we know that we, that we sort of know is out there some way, but we don't know what it is or how it works. It's just surrounded in a cloud of mystery. And it's, I think it, if things are working right, it's not meant to invoke in us fear that pushes us away, but awe. And there's a difference between fear and awe. Because fear is the thing that makes us shake and want to leave. And awe is the thing that makes us shake and want to come close. And it's that all kind of thing. And I think when you read through Scripture, when it talks about the fear of the Lord, it's this kind. It's the all kind of thing. And the place that we're really are trying to get is we've got to hold these two really weird opposite things. God in his grandeur and majesty and power and might. And God as friend, the one who's closer than a brother, who loves us, who lays down his life for us. And who knows everything about you and lavishes his love on you. We kind of hold both of these things, right? And we can kind of see what happens from there if we don't do this by kind of looking at what happens when you, when you get things kind of backwards for a minute. And we think about our first reading today from Exodus for just a minute, how it starts out with Moses. And I always imagine Moses as this former Egyptian prince, handsome, probably ripped, out there taking care of the sheep. And then suddenly there's this bush, right? And this voice, and it's like, get your shoes off. And he's like, he's shaking in his shoes or, or in his bare feet. He's shaking and, and he's there. And then, but, but it doesn't end there, right? So God lets him know of his majesty. He gets this incredible miracle. He's told, you're on holy land, get your shoes off, all of this. So he gets this transcendent part. But then we go on to read later in Exodus 33 about how Moses gets to meet with him face to face as a friend. You get the sense that, that Moses is grounded in his experiences in both of these. And that God really calls us to hold both of these, this awe and fear kind of thing and this friendship kind of thing. And we see this again and again in lots of writings, right? C.S. Lewis said, look, you really only begin to get the gospel when you realize the bad shape you're in. I think that's kind of the fear piece or the awe piece. And then you come close and realize the friend and the grace and all this stuff that goes with it. Or again, to go back... Um, to Paul in Romans. Paul, 
Paul, again, wants to spend the first part of Romans painting how bad the picture is before he tells us how great it is. But you get the, in a sense, it's the fear piece along with the friendship piece brings it together. And it changes how we view these things. A, a number of years ago, I met this, uh, this um, it was actually a client at the time, but I met this guy who um, was wealth, a well-off guy, and he decided for vacation that he and his family would rent this house on a small Caribbean island somewhere that was a really super small island. There were only four houses on the whole island. And it was in, about this time. It was about early August. And so he flew, they flew his family out to, to this island. And while he was there, he uh, was walking down the road. And I can't remember if he said the guy was riding up on a bike or if he was walking. But anyway, he, long story short is he meets Lance Armstrong before he falls from grace. And this was right after the Tour de France, which he won. And so there are like four families on the whole island. So that he strikes up this conversation. But he was telling me how cool it was because they became good friends. I mean, he, he's got his cell phone number and his phone. They hung out. Apparently, Lance Armstrong likes, likes beer. They drank a lot of beer together and all this. They were hanging out. But I wondered to what extent that friendship would have been the same if the guy had not known Lance. If he hadn't known how important his time was. If he hadn't known all the millions of people that wanted to visit with him. But he kind of knew that. And so this, the, the friendship was different, right? It was, it was different from the get-go. And I think it's a little bit like that with us. When we get God of the universe, when we dwell on that piece and don't disregard that, and then get to focus on how we're friends, it becomes a much more full picture of what it is, that whole thing. And I think about that. We think about um, how in Psalm 25, it says how the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. This all thing. They, these things go together. So I think from there, you think about what, when we get these things wrong, right? So the, the first piece is if we imagine for a minute that you don't get God's eminence and you don't get his closeness, all you get is his transcendence, then all you get is a scary God that you really honestly don't want to be around. So you come to church shaking in your shoes, you do your reverence, and then you forget about him on Monday because part of you is really trying to get away. You don't have the deep peace that Paul talks about. On the other hand, if all you have is the friendship piece and you forget God's majesty and grandeur and his awesomeness, and all you have is a friendship piece, then you miss out as well. I like the way um, the author Mark Buchanan talks about this. He says, but this, the, the pampering deity is nothing but a cosmic lackey, an errand boy we call on to make, us, to make our golf games pleasant or to help us escape reality for a little while, and then we summarily dismiss Worship him, rever him, die for him, believe that he died a cruel and bloody death for us, you must be kidding. So you miss out on that picture as well. And we miss out on learning what it is to be silent before God. Or we begin to think that we can do it all ourselves. Or we begin to think that parts of the scripture are just weird and unrelated to us. I think about this, a number of years ago I had a, a parishioner come to me, and I wouldn't do this to you, so don't be fearful about coming to me. But this was a really unique situation. And this guy came to me and we chatted for a long time. And he wanted to recommit himself, himself to God. And so we went to the chapel and uh, I read some, some admittedly Old Testament scripture at this point. And I said, I, I want you to really, I'm, I'm praying about this, but I really want you to prostrate yourself before God. And he looked at me like, what? And, but he got down on the ground and prostrated himself. And because and, he, he asked me to go to the chapel and recommit himself. So he did that. He got down on the ground. And he talked about how powerful that was for him. And I think that's, that seems really weird to us if we don't hold this majesty piece. 
Because that's part of it. That's part of how we worship. That's part of the reverence. We don't want to lose the other part, but that's part of it. The book of Hebrews says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For God is a consuming fire. This idea, we want to hold both of these things. We want to come and worship. It will affect our worship. It will affect our prayer life. It will affect how we image God if we can hold these two things at the same time. It was said uh, that Martin Luther used to approach with the reverence of God and the boldness of a friend. And, um, and, and that's how we're meant to approach God, right? Because he loves us this way, but he calls us to reverence, deep reverence. They go together. That's where our title um, comes from today, this idea of a bow and a kiss. If you look at the Old Testament word, the most common word used for worship in the Old Testament is um, shakaha, which means to bow in reverence. And the most common word used for worship in the New Testament is proscunio. I'm probably giving a redneck or, or a Spanish pronunciation to that. But, which means to, to approach, to kiss, or to kiss the hand of. So you get the idea from the two of those that, that they go together that way. That's where our title comes from. And um, today I want to end the sermon differently than we, I think we've ever done in here. I've, I've asked uh, Justin and particularly Tiffany as well and the whole band, thank you guys for, for rehearsing this and getting this ready. But I want to end today with a song as a reflection that is on the whole of this sermon today and to thinking about how God is both of these things. So I invite you to make this our closing prayer and just take in the words um, as they sing them.
emotions 